which go in thereat. Because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way, which leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. Beware of false prophets, which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly there are ravening wolves. You shall know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes of thorns, or figs of thistles? Even so, every good tree bringeth forth good fruit, but a corrupt tree bringeth forth evil fruit. A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. Every tree that bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. Wherefore, by their fruits ye shall know them. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. But he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? And in thy name cast out, have cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works. And then I will profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Therefore, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them, I will liken him unto a wise man, which built his house upon a rock. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat upon that house, and it fell not, for it was founded upon a rock. And everyone that heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them not shall be likened unto a foolish man which built his house upon the sand. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat upon that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. Before we continue this evening, let's look at in prayer. Father, we come before your throne of grace again this evening. Lord, we are thankful to once again be here tonight. Lord, to be able to partake in the worship service through the singing, or the prayers that have been offered up. Father, we are humbled that we have this privilege to come into your presence I pray now, Lord, that you'd bless your word as it goes forth. I pray that your spirit would be pleased to empower it in a way that only you can. Speak to our hearts, Father, as it's our greatest need. And Lord, above all else, we pray that you'd be glorified and magnified here in our midst. We ask all these things in the name of your precious Son. Amen. Thank you. You all can be seated. Matthew chapter 7, and, and our, our main text, Lord willing, will we'll begin in verse 24. Uh, but we're going to go back to verse 13 and, and look at everything that leads up to that. Uh, here in, in Matthew chapter 7, we have the conclusion of what we often refer to as the Sermon on the Mount, and it is uh, perhaps one of the most intriguing sermons that we have in the Bible, as it was preached by the Son of God himself uh, as he began his earthly ministry here in this world. Uh, what's interesting about the sermon is how, uh, I suppose for lack of a better term, how balanced the sermon is. It is both very doctrinal or very theological from it. We learn a lot about God the Father. We learn about his standard of righteousness. We learn about our relationship to him as Jesus refers to him as our Father, not necessarily our Master or our Lord or not even necessarily our God, but, but our Father. But while it's so practical or while it's so doctrinal, it is also immensely practical. Uh, it is in this sermon that Jesus corrects the, the mistaken views on the law. He, he goes back and points out that it was not merely something that was to be external, but it was to have a root, take its root within the heart of, 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 its, of its doers, if you will. And so the, the Sermon on the Mount is a very intriguing sermon, again, for many different reasons. And again, to, just to hit a few of the high points in this sermon, there's a lot that Jesus covers, all right? Now, you all, uh, you all bear with me for just a moment. Uh, in the first part of the sermon, between verses 1 through 12, we have what we call the Beatitudes. It is a picture of the true child of God. Uh, they're not perfect, they're not sinless, but it is a complete picture of the child of God. Uh, in turn from that, because of that, Jesus calls us to be salt and light in verses 13 through 16, 
In verses 17 through 48, he expounds on the Mosaic law. He is not adding to it. He is not reinventing to reinventing it, but he is rather correcting their mistaken thoughts on the law. In verses in chapter 6, verses 1 through 18, we have an explanation on good works from, from giving of alms to prayer, to fasting. Uh, And then verses 19 through 24, he speaks of our affections and how important it is that our affections are upon the right things. Verses 25 through 34, he speaks of worry and anxiety, which is an important passage of scripture. It seems like, especially in our day and age, I find it intriguing that in one of the very very first sermons that we read, uh, as you read the Bible from front to back, one of those topics that Jesus addresses is that of worry and anxiety. Uh, In in chapter 7, we have the way we live and how we are not to judge, but we are to be a discerning people. And then finally, of course, in verse 12, we have what we call the the golden rule. And essentially, it is kind of the very essence of Christianity that we are to treat others the way we ourselves want to be treated, which again, uh, is, is somewhat of a reflection on the person of God himself. Now, after all of that, all right, I didn't give you all that just to fill some some time here, but it's after all of that that Jesus brings his sermon to a conclusion. He brings it to an end, as as most preachers do. In the verses that we read tonight, beginning in verse number 13, he, he, he begins the closing, and then after the closing, after the challenge, or after even the invitation and the warning, uh, Jesus closes with a story, which we'll come to in, in just a moment. Now, to take a quick look at verses number 13 through verse number 23, there are three major points our our Savior gives us here. The first one is that he leaves the ball in the court of his hearers. Now, I do want to be clear, and I I trust I'm in good company. Of course, I don't subscribe to, to what's referred to as decisional regeneration, that we make a decision for God. I don't subscribe to that because if the Lord wants to save someone, there is absolutely nothing anyone can do to stop that. And so when God chooses to save a soul, they will be saved. But I find it interesting that at the very end of his sermon, he doesn't look at the hearers and say, now to be clear, you all are dead in trespasses and sins and there's nothing you can do and there's nothing you should do based upon the sermon that I just preached. But rather, I I picture in my mind's eye, which we're not told here, of course, but I I picture Jesus looks at the multitude that's there along with his disciples and says to them, enter ye in at the straight gate. What's he setting before them? He's setting before them a choice. This is the gate you go into. Based on everything I've just said, go into this gate. Enter ye in at the straight gate. He says there, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction and many there be which go in they're at. In other words, go into the, the narrow gate, go into the straight gate. The rest of the world, everyone else, they go into the broad gate, they go into the wide gate. That's where the people go who, who want to be Christians when it's convenient. They want to be Christians when it's popular. They want to be Christians. They want a Christianity that is man-centered, where God serves them and provides all their needs and all their wants. But Jesus says, but you all, you are to enter into the straight gate. Now, I want to point out before we leave this, these two verses here, it's not enough to admire the gate. So many people will sit back and they will, they will readily admit that Christianity seems like a good thing. In its historical sense, Christianity has done a lot for the world and it's good that there's a group of people who are selfless and they're in their living and their actions. But, you know, Christianity is not really for me. But because of their admiration for Christianity, they think that'll, 
impress God just enough. It's not enough to sit back and admire the gate and, and talk about how wonderful the gate is and how strong the gate is and how, how ornate the gate looks. You have to walk through the gate. Jesus doesn't sit back and say, now, what do you all think about the gate? Or is there anything I should change about the gate? He simply says, enter ye in at the straight gate. Our relationship with the gate is that we walk through it. We don't talk about it. We don't go around it. We walk through the gate. Now, from there in verse number 15, uh, someone's phone rang the other night, and Brother Holt was more than excited to wonder if it was mine. So for the record, <laughs> that's not mine. I'm going to get that out there and run over the Holt. It's probably my wife's, though. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, it's, going to be a cold out, it's going to be a cold night outside the hotel this evening. <laughs> uh, now, in verse number 15, now Jesus has given the command, enter in at the straight gate. All right, there it is. And again, I, I imagine my mind's eye, I wasn't there. I, it would have been amazing to see him preach this sermon. But I, I, I imagine Jesus pauses for just a moment, and, and there's kind of a hush that comes over the crowd. And Jesus says, beware, careful. He says there in verse 15, beware of false prophets. Now, remember, at this point in time, Jesus' ministry, which was the main scope of his ministry, it was, to the, it was to the Jewish people, and so they would have known something of false prophets. We read a lot about them uh, throughout the, through, through uh, First Chronicles or First Kings through Second Chronicles. So they knew something of false prophets. This wasn't a foreign idea. They knew a false prophet was one who, who misdirected them, who didn't direct them according to the way of God. And so Jesus says there in verse 15, Beware. Beware of false prophets which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they're ravening wolves. These would be the people, as one writer said, these would be the people who'd stand at the wide gate and say, hey, you all go in this gate. Look how wide this gate is. Everyone else is going through this gate. You all go through this gate right here. Jesus says, beware of them. They come to you in sheep's clothing. They look nice. They smell nice. They're awful, they're awful soft and fluffy and everything's so good. But inwardly, Jesus says, they're ravening wolves. They're violent. They're ready to tear into you. They care nothing for you, even though they would put on airs that all that matters to them is, is your well-being. Beware of false prophets, Jesus says. Now, this, this, this presents a problem. Now, you know, depending on how good their tailor is, that sheepskin might look really, really good. Y'all ever see a guy in a, in a tailored suit, how good that tailored suit looks? The guy might be as, as ugly as the worst thing you've seen, but if he's got a tailored suit, that suit looks awful good. Well, how do you know? They come, in, they, they, they come in sheepskin. I remember seeing this picture. I don't know. It might have been from a, a Mickey Mouse cartoon from a long time ago where it had the, the big bad wolf with, with sheepskin on, but you could still see his mouth. Or you could still see the sharp teeth. And that's the picture we have. In other words, it's, it's easy to spot the false prophets, and some of them are. But if they were easy to spot, then why would Jesus give us this test for the false prophets? They come to you in sheep's clothing. Well, how do we know? How do we know if they're really of God? Or how do we know that they're actually false prophets? Well, Jesus goes on to say in verse 16, you shall know them by their fruits. Now, again, remember that during this time, during this culture, uh, farming would have been something that a lot of them would have been familiar with. It would have been a, a way of life. A lot of their, their, their uh, financial income would have come from some form of farming. Uh, they didn't have Walmart. Not yet. That was a few years later. They had to grow a lot of what they had. And so Jesus goes on to say there, do men gather grapes of thorns or, or figs of thistles? The, I mean, it's, it's a rhetorical question. Of course not, Jesus. I like when one preacher said the disciples probably were embarrassed. and said, what's he getting at? You don't gather 
Grapes of thorns. Why, why would anyone think that? And so Jesus goes on in verse 17, even so every good tree bringeth forth good fruit. Don't just look at what the false prophets are, are saying. Look at how they're living. Do their fruit line up with what they say? He says again there in verse 17, even so every good tree bringeth forth good fruit, but a corrupt tree bringeth forth evil fruit. A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. Every tree that bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast in fire, wherefore by their fruits ye shall know them. Now, again, before we leave this passage, I think that this test cuts both ways. We'll pause for just a minute and ask all of us here tonight, what kind of fruit are you bearing? Does the fruit you bear match up with your testimony, match up with what you say? James gives a really good test of this there in James chapter 1 and verse 26. Now, James has been challenging the reader, the hearer, to be doers of the word and, and not just hearers. And then James, without missing a beat, without starting a new thought, he, 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 asks, he points out, to, to, to paraphrase just a little bit, he says, if there is one who claims to be religious and yet bridleth not his tongue, this man's religion is vain. So, so what James is saying is that we can claim to know God, we can claim to be religious, we can claim to, to have that personal relationship with God the Father, as Jesus has emphasized, but if we are choosing to not bridle our tongue, I'm not talking about sinless perfection with our tongue, but if we choose to not bridle our tongue, you all know what that is. That's our fruit not lining up with what we say. What kind of fruit are we bearing, dear church? Now again, to be clear, I'm not talking about Sinless perfection, as, as one writer pointed out, that if you were to look at David's life in that roughly nine-month period where Bathsheba was, was pregnant with her first child, you would have thought King David was never a Christian, was not a Christian at all. But over the tenor of our lives, what kind of fruit are we bearing? And then after all of this, the, the, it takes a much more serious turn as he brings a sermon to a close. And he gives a warning. He says in verse 21, not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. Now, again, to the Jewish, to the Jewish here, this would have been kind of insulting. <laughs> you go to, uh, to John, is it John 6 or John 8, one of those two passages, and uh, you can gather that they thought that just because they were Jews, they were automatically Christians, if I could put it like that. They automatically thought they're in the kingdom of heaven. And so for Jesus to tell his Jewish audience, not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven. Just because you say, Lord, Lord, which implies they didn't come to church once a month. They didn't give a tithe and their offering once every six months. These were faithful people. Lord, Lord. And Jesus says, not everyone that saith to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father, which is in heaven, the person who is living in accordance to God's word and God's will, that's the one, that's the person, that's the man, the woman, that will enter into the kingdom of heaven. He goes on to say in verse 22, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? And in thy name have cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works? And then I will profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you that work iniquity. I've heard that, and uh, I've heard that the most difficult part of people who suffer from Alzheimer's or dementia, severe dementia, is that 
there comes a point that you go into to your parent or whoever it may be, and they don't recognize you. And it's, it's gut-wrenching from what I've heard. So, you all know how it is. You know, you, you know the look on your face when someone comes up to you and they, they, they know you, but you don't remember them? To be on the receiving end of that with someone who suffers from Alzheimer's, I've heard is terrible. Now, the difference, though, is they had a relationship. They have a relationship. But these people here that Jesus is speaking of, they thought they had a relationship. And God will one day look at them and say, depart from me, I never knew you. It's, it's, and he goes on to finish in verse 23, ye that work iniquity. Now, I find that phrase interesting because what does he mean? Are they not casting out devils? Are they not doing many wonderful works? But according to God's standards, they're working iniquity? It struck me as I was preparing for this, perhaps the reason for this. Now, I don't know that there were any, but I'm sure they heard of it. I, I, I would imagine the Pharisees caught wind of this, of this sermon. Now, remember, they were the standard of, I mean, if there was anyone good in society, it was the Pharisees. Everyone, I mean, they, they aimed to be like the Pharisees. Now, they did a lot of good works, but it came from a corrupt, proud, self-centered and self-worshipping hearts. Therefore, even their good works, they were works of iniquity. So these people, they may have cast out devils, they may have done many wonderful works, but because it came from the corrupt heart, they never knew God and God never knew them. Furthermore, what's interesting is that, and, and we know, or we, we, we're fairly certain that on judgment day, God will not necessarily ask us why he should let us into heaven. But for the true child of God, we know that our response would be because Jesus Christ, your son, died for me. Not because of what I've done, but because of what your son has done. Now, Jesus, in this, in this little insight, they're not asked that. But did you all notice how quick they were to respond and what the response was? Lord, now remember, these were Jewish peoples. They... they through the prophets and prophecies, they knew that there was a Messiah, there was a Christ, there was an anointed one. They knew that, that uh, Jehovah God was going to send his servant that we read of in Isaiah 51 through 53. They knew that there was going to be someone that would come and that someone would provide salvation. How many details they knew, I don't know, but they knew God was going to provide some kind of a savior. And yet their first go-to answer is not, Lord, because of your anointed one, because of your holy one, but it's because, Lord, have we not done? Y'all see what I'm getting at? These weren't Gentile people who, who thought that everything was, was merits-based. They knew something of God's word. They knew something of God's plan. But their first and foremost response was, Lord, have we not done? Now, that's, that's terrifying, isn't it? We often, and it's not entirely wrong. I, I greatly appreciate the sermon last night. I say that not just because it was my dad, but it's challenging and convicting to me. But we often measure our spirituality by our service. And that's not entirely wrong, obviously, because for those who are cold and distant, there is no service. Faith without works is dead, is what, what James says. But when there comes a point that we only measure our relationship with God by what we do, that so easily turns into an idol where all of a sudden we put our works and our service above the finished work of Jesus Christ. 
And while we would not say it the way they say it, our initial response as well would be, have we not done? Again, they completely missed the point. Now, carrying on to verse 24, all of that was introduction, all right? It's been about 20 minutes since I've been preaching, all right? So last night, so it was two hours, so we're going to get there. I'm kidding, of course. Some of you look terrified. Now, what's interesting about this is that I've, I've, I've been preaching for a handful of years, uh, eight, eight, nine years, so somewhere in there. And to me, verse 23, would be a, that'd be a place to stop the sermon, wouldn't it? Kind of leave the, the audience hanging and challenged and warned and, and thinking. But not the Son of God. He had a different plan. He goes on, he tells a story. Now, stories are really good, and it's interesting that Jesus actually spoke a lot in parables. He spoke a lot in stories. Uh, stories primarily, or, or one of the biggest reasons stories are wonderful, is because they have a point of, of shedding light on truth that wasn't once before understood, right? Uh, so, for instance, my daughter is three years old, and she had the Ugly Duckling book, and, and you all know the story that it's a swan egg that gets mixed with the, with the duck eggs and, and it grows up and it's an ugly little bird and it grows up to be a beautiful swan and the moral of the story is that uh, true beauty is inner beauty, so to speak. I read that book every morning trying to make myself feel better, but it doesn't really work, to be honest. But you all know what I'm getting at. We have the story of the boy who cried wolf and we know the, the point of that story. It's not just a nice little story. There is a lesson within the story. And so many times Jesus would speak in parables and there was a lesson within those parables. I appreciate what one writer said that now we got to be careful because generally there's one or two or maybe three major lessons. We're not to nitpick the parable and make everything line up with, with, with the truth of God's word, but there was one big hard-hitting lesson in a story. So after all of this, Jesus has painted a picture of what a true follower of look, he looks like in the beginning of, of Matthew chapter 5. He has corrected the wrong thinking of the law. He's given instruction for our good works. He speaks to our affections. He gives us encouragement in, in the midst of stress and worry and anxiety. He's done all of these things for us. He is, he's challenged the people. He's left the ball in their court, entering at the straight gate. And now he ends with a story. And it's a very simple story, and probably a story we all heard in Sunday school or at some point or another. And he, he says in verse 24, Therefore, in other words, based on everything I've said, therefore, whoever heareth, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them, I will liken him unto a wise man which built his house upon a rock. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat upon that house, and it fell not, for it was founded upon a rock. And everyone that heareth these things of mine and doeth them not shall be likened unto a foolish man which built his house upon the sand. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat upon that house, and it fell. There's a story. There's two men. They both build a house. I imagine the same neighborhood or same vicinity because I think it's the same storm that hit them. And the only difference between these two men is that one built his house upon a good foundation. Now, if you're a builder, uh, if you're not a builder, if you played with Legos, you know how important a good foundation is. Well, one man built his house upon the rock. He dug down deep. He got to where there was that bedrock, and that's where he started building. This other man, though, loved the beach so much. Beautiful view, sunny day, not a cloud in the sky, and he, he builds his house in the sand. 
probably digs a couple of feet and so that's probably good enough. And if you know something of sand, you can't really tamp sand down like dirt. And sand is definitely not anywhere near as solid as a rock. Man, so that's probably good enough. And they build their house. Weeks go by or months or even years go by. And both from the outward appearance, they both look great. They're both beautiful. But one day a storm comes. And it's not just any storm. It's a, it's a bad storm. It didn't just rain, Jesus says. The, the, it started to flood. And the wind started to blow and it beat on that house. I spoke to a fellow the other day. I, I, uh, I, I don't quite need glasses that bad, but uh, I'm, I, uh, if I take them off, I can't see everyone's face, which is very tempting sometimes when I'm preaching. And uh, he lived in New Orleans, or right outside New Orleans when Katrina hit. He said that while they were down there, it was normal, hurricane season was normal. So they would have parties and stuff, hurricane season. He said the morning, the morning of, they were planning the party, uh, they were planning the events of the party, and within 10 or 12 hours, he and his girlfriend at the time were huddled in the hallway with a, with a, a big, thick blanket over the head because they had no idea what was going to happen. Not just some small storm, it was a bad storm. And after all the wind, and after all the rain, and after all the floods, when everything finally cleared up, you could see what happened. One house was standing. The other house crumpled and fell. Now, the point of the story is, is to challenge again. The lesson of the story is to challenge the, the hearer, right? And he wants the multitude to understand that what's on the line is not just a few minor inconveniences. What's on the line is, is your house. As one preacher said, that wood represents what's familiar, it represents our life. It represents our the empire that is our life, if I could word it like that. What Jesus is emphasizing here is that if you don't enter into the straight gate, your house will come crashing down one day when the storms get bad enough. If you build your house on the rock, if you enter into the straight gate, your house will stand. Now the truth is, all of us here tonight, it's part of the reason for this revival. We, we want a good life. I'm not talking about some prosperity gospel kind of life. I'm not, I'm not here to tell you all that, you know, follow Jesus and you'll get that new Corvette. You'll never be a sick day in your life. And wherever you go, it'll be sunny and 65 year round. That's not the point, but we want a good life. Do we not? I mean, we, we want a successful life. Again, not by the world standards, but we don't want to at the end on our deathbed look back just full of regrets. I, I hope that I have a wonderful relationship with my daughter when she sticks me in a nursing home one day. I hope to have a good marriage with my wife for, for my whole life. I hope that the church I pastor will always be blessed. I, I want a good life. We all want a good life. Both these men want a good life. We want a good house. And you'll notice that the only difference between these two men, they both built a house. They both wanted that house. They both face the same storm. I mean, that, isn't that kind of, again, back to the prosperity gospel, you know, health, wealth, and no more storm. They both face the same storm. But the only, only difference between these two men was that one built his house on the rock and the other built his house on the sand. I like what one writer pointed out regarding this is that the thing is, you can see the foundations. All of us here tonight, we've got a life, right? 
We can't see each other's foundations. That's, that's, that's kind of the point of a foundation. You can't see it. But one built on the rock and one built on the sand. Here's the point. Notice what he says there in 24 and in verse 26. He says, Therefore, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine. Verse 26, And everyone that heareth these sayings of mine. When the second man's house crumpled, he could not say, I didn't know. I wasn't there that Sunday. I, 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 I didn't get the same message that my neighbor got. No, both of them heard the same sayings. What's the difference? One chose to obey, and the other chose not to obey. See what I'm getting at? Dear Christian, my, my point is, is that if we want a good house, we want a good life. Now, it's, it's not perfect. I full well realize that. But if we want a good life, we have to build that life upon the foundation that is God's Word. Amen. Who was it that once jokingly said that uh, if, if uh, I'm 30 now, I turned 30 this year, I feel like I'm getting old. I know that's not true to some of you all. Very true for the ones younger than me. Um, and uh, who was it once jokingly said that it, it, they wish they could have written a book when they turned 20 when they still knew everything? Marriage is hard. I, I never realized how hard marriage could be. Being a dad is hard. I think it's probably one of the scariest things that, that stares at me every day, literally. It's hard. But you know, the, the, the glory of God's Word is that He has something to say about what kind of husband I need to be. Now, when I come across that passage, I'm faced with a choice. Do I build my marriage on that rock? Or do I build that marriage on what I think is best? You all know what happens if I build that marriage on what I think is best, on that sand, it'll crumple one day. The Bible gives instruction for what kind of dad I need to be. Again, thankfully, God doesn't require sinless perfection because I'm far from it. But if I build my, 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 my parenting, my dadship, dadhood, is that, is that a word? I was homeschooled, like I said the other night. I don't know. Uh, if I build my parenting on what I think needs to be done and what I think is right, that relationship may very well crumble. But you know, it's, it's not just that. The Bible, same passage, has something to say to, to masters and servants, masters and slaves. In our day and age, employers and employees. What kind of employee should you be? The Bible tells you. It tells you what kind of church member you should be. It tells me what kind of preacher I should be. And in all of these areas, we are faced, will I build that house, will I build my life upon the rock of God's word, or will I build it upon the sand of my own shortcoming wisdom. If I build it upon my wisdom, guess what will happen? It'll crumble one day. It'll crumble. May I take it one step further just for the sake of application? The whole house has to be built upon the, found, the same foundation. One thing I see in my short years of pastoring is that so many times, you know, 85% of our lives will be built upon the rock of God's word. And so we are the kind of, uh, you fill in the blank, or the kind of dad we should be or, or mom we should be, the kind of church member we should be. Um, but I tell you what, my boss, they're not Christian and I know I have to submit to them, but if, if God knows how they are, so God will excuse my behavior. Do you see what I'm getting at? And what good is it to have this big, beautiful house 
but the bathroom's not built on the same foundation. I wouldn't like that. Well, good, we have this big old mansion, but half the house is built upon the sand. I'll risk one day it crumbles down, but leaving me the other half. So many Christians, they'll bring 90% into submission to Christ, 2 Corinthians 10.5. They'll, they'll bring 95%, but God knows how sincere I am, and God knows how that person is, so he doesn't mind if I disobey a little bit in this area. I mean, is it 90% enough? Yeah, have a contractor tell you that when, when they tell you that not all of it's on the same foundation. You wouldn't like that, would you? The whole house must be built upon the foundation of the rock. And so, dear Christian and dear listener, I, I leave us with this challenge this, this evening. Considering that only God's Word can be the proper foundation, what are you building your life on right now? Again, we heard a tremendous sermon last night. We were left with the choice, do we draw nigh? Do we not? I can't make that decision for you. You can't make that decision for me. And again, I, please don't misunderstand. Uh, I'm not talking about in a salvational sense. But the thing about God's Word is, is it's, in our day and age, it's, it's, it's everywhere, right? I mean, we have it on our phones, on our computers, and it, it's everywhere. I heard one other preacher half-jokingly say that when he would pastor, one thing that frustrated him is that people would come to him with his problem, and his very first question he'd want to ask but never didn't always do so was, well, did you see what God's Word said about it? How often do we go to a friend or a family or a church or a pastor, and nothing wrong with that, but what does God's Word say about it? Dear Christian, what are you building your life on this evening? Are you bringing everything into submission to Christ, living in the way that he's called you to live? Or have you mixed some sand in with that rock? You know, what God said, it's true and it's great. Man, I, you know, I've got five years of experience being a husband, right? You, you know what I'm saying? What are you building your house on, dear Christian? And for those of you here tonight, if any are here this evening without a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. What a terrifying thing it will be. I, I don't know how it will be. I, I, I don't know. But I've, I've shared with the church that I pastor, I've shared with them, you know how, how terrifying would it be if we're all there on Judgment Day. God looks at someone that I had the opportunity to preach to week after week. God says, depart from me, I never knew you. Dear sinner, Maybe you're here tonight, and you think you've got a pretty good life. And maybe you do. Maybe you've got some money in the bank, and, and I, I hope that you have good relationships. If you're married, if you're not married, I, 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 hope, I hope it's true. But even if you live your entire life and you're successful by the world standard, when you stand before God and the storm of His wrath hits you, and you are not in Christ that point, everything you've ever done, everything you've ever been proud of, all of it will crumble. But the Bible says, today is the day of salvation. And so I think the singular question applies both to the saved and to the lost. What are you going to do? Again, I don't believe in decisional regeneration, but the ball's in our court. Dear Christian, what are you going to do? Will you live your life in submission to God's word? Will you build your house upon the rock? Dear sinner, will you continue on in your own self-righteousness, 
Will you continue on in, in your sincerity? Will you continue on saying that God knows, you know, you're not as bad as Adolf Hitler. You're certainly not as bad as your neighbor down the street. Will you continue on in your own self-righteousness? Or will you look to Jesus Christ and be saved? Dear Christian and dear sinner alike, I urge all of us this evening, look to Christ. Look to Jesus Christ. Bring yourself in submission to him. Through Christ, you can have salvation in the fullest sense. Marriages can be saved. Souls can be saved. But we must look to Christ and build our lives upon his word. Pastor.